You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Everybody, welcome back to the Ducks on the Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Jennings. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. My name is John Gordon. I'll be your host. And I'm your host, Katie Burke. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited Podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America. The DU Podcast, sponsored by Purina Pro Plan, the official performance dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Purina Pro Plan, always advancing. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Ducks Unlimited podcast. Thanks for joining us. Today, I have the honor of being in Uncle Pete's shop at his house, Mr. Pete Peterson at Decoy Carver. And we are actually getting to sit in his shop and look at his work. And it's pretty great. I haven't got to do this before. I have interviewed Carvers, uh, a few, um, and we've always been over the phone or at a show or somewhere, but never actually in your space, in your element. So this is kind of special. I'm glad I get to do this. Um, so welcome to the show. Thanks for letting me come out here. Well, you're welcome. Yeah. Welcome to Pete Town. <laughs> so let's just start with kind of give me a background of how you got into the outdoors and hunting and deco Just kind of give me a a background of how it all began. You go back as far as you like. Well, when I was a young man, I grew up in the what was country then. It's the suburbs taking over now, but it was country and right on the water. This all all of the things country boys did, hunting, fishing, were certainly one of them. That's what I did. Just never stopped. Yeah. Did your dad hunt or anything? No. So you did it on your own with friends and that sort of thing? Yeah, just a lot of it was just mostly on my own. Okay. All the other boys wanted to play baseball. I'd rather go fishing. So what, I mean, if nobody was, nobody, if your dad wasn't hunting or fishing and your friends weren't, like what made you think to pick up a pole and go? Just in me, I guess. Yeah. No Viking blood to go fishing. <laughs> How old were you when you shot your first duck? 13, 14. I started carving decoys when I was 12. 12. And then what what inspired you to hunt just to, or to carve a decoy? What was what was that spark that what made you want to go do it? Cuz I needed a decoy to go hunting. Yeah. So what where do you see your first decoy? I guess that is. Yeah. Well, the, the, well, the decoy was washing up on the beach. Okay. And they were there and I could, I could see what they were and what the, that's what the how they were used. It was a simple enough thing to make one. Make yeah. a cobble. They're pretty crude. But just chop out a body and make a head. Yeah. Paint her up and put her overboard. What did your parents think when you started like chopping out decoys? They're just like that's an ordinary silly thing. Kid. Yeah. <laughs> ordinary thing. I was chopping up all kinds of other stuff too. <laughs> chopping firewood, chopping decoys. Yeah. So were you always um did you always 
like to do things with your hands? Like, were you always just kind of, that's just tactile work, in that way? Work with hands and, with my hands and wood. Okay. That's like, well, I do all kinds of carpentry stuff too. Yeah. I just love working with wood and my hands. Yeah, so it's just something natural that came to you just to work with your hands. Uh, I guess I, I was told I had a great uncle that was a craft, was a carpenter. Okay. I don't know whether whatever coming down. Yeah. Don't, don't know, just just one of those things I just always love to do. Yeah, that makes sense. It's hard to explain what it is that makes us like something like that. I mean, I I painted from a young age, and I couldn't tell you why I painted. I just like doing it. <laughs> and then did you realize you were, like, not bad at it, that you were actually kind of decent at working with your hands pretty early? Did you kind of feel apt to do things, like... If you wanted to make it, you could make it. Yeah, that's what I did. Yeah. Okay. Just, just like the shop, needed a shop and had no money. So I built this out of wood from the beach. Yeah, you saw a need and you just... Yeah, I need, needed another building. I put them up. Find a building to tear down for the lumber and put up another one here. Yeah. So how often do you use... You were saying earlier when we were talking and about like you recycled wood from like the beach and other houses. Did you mostly recycle wood for that sort of thing or... Did you kind of do a hodgepodge like you did a little bit of bulk lumber and for decoys or both? Yeah, either. Yeah. Well, I'm just start curious. out with start out with whatever decoy wood from the beach that was big enough. Okay. And then I started learning wood a lot better, a lot better. Okay. This is part of the evolution in in the the trade. And once I I found June, okay, white cedar. I was in love. Yeah. I said, no more. Oh, this beech wood. And if it junk, I'm nothing but juniper. Okay. And is it just the way, like, the tools move through it? And- uh, just the way. <laughs> it's just made to be worked. Just made to be worked into all sorts of things. Yeah. And what, if you're using beech wood, what problems does beech wood give you while you're working with it? Like <laughs> It was junk wood to begin with. Yeah, right. <laughs> I don't know, nails and knots. Okay. Yeah. Well, I just think well, the reason I say that is because like North Carolina birds are always, a lot of them are made of just junk wood. And do you think that was just out of necessity or were they, that that's what they had? Or oh, Yeah, that's one of the things. They were made for what they had. Okay. Tools, wood-wise, paint-wise, you know, not many, but, you know, like 100 years ago, people were poor. Even the rich people were what we would call now destitute-based. They were all hungry, and people say, oh, and they had plenty of time. You know, that they did not have No, time. they were busy. <laughs> they were trying to f- f- grow stuff enough to survival. Uh, anyway, they just had to work with what they had. Yeah, I just think about that. You know, and there's carvers in areas where they use the found stuff, and then you have the more detailed guy. I, I don't know why I'm thinking about North Carolina and that area, but like, you know, Dudley, who made that super decorative piece. And it's like, wonder, I don't know, what, how do you, how do you diverge so far from one style to the next? That's, that's a new signature. <laughs> Some people got, you know, the, Really, what you call detail, and some are just kind of sloppy, whatever. It, 
It's just a matter of style. So you're making your first decoys to hunt with, right, when you were young. And as you start getting better and making more decoys, and I mean, I'm sure, how many are you making in the beginning? Like, how many were you making a year to start? Just what you needed or? <laughs> whatever I could, whatever I could. Don't know. Don't okay, know. yeah. So when did you start thinking about selling them? It wasn't like an instant moment. Anyway, it's a when I first moved here to the Eastern Shore, one of my neighbors' father was a dentist okay. from, from the Western Shore, and he gave me ten dollars for one. So anyway, I knew that they could be used for more than hunting. Okay, so from then, so when did you start going to shows and stuff? In '72, I think that was the second year that they had the Eastern Show. It was nothing like it is now. Nothing. It was a uh, more of a circus. Okay. And with, with no work with no net, and now it's all you know, Osho approved. It's and, very fashionable. Yeah. <laughs> well, the yuppies have taken the show over now, but at that time there were gunners. Okay. And the used were, were calling all the shots. How many carvers would be at those early shows? I, I couldn't. I couldn't even estimate. Not a couple dozen, maybe. Okay. Maybe and is sure. that like your first? Is that your first time to really meet other carvers and start talking to other carvers? Or no, no. Because I, I mean, you're here, so that's a little different. Well, well, all my life, if if there was a decor carver around, okay, I went to see him. Okay, and, and most of them were older. Yes. Well, matter of fact, it was starting out, all of them were older, and I just 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 meet and just kind of like just to expand. Every time I see can see somebody, because I got a lot in common with. Them. Something to talk about and exchange ideas. And that's part of how you learn, accumulate, accumulate, accumulate little tricks. So who were some of those first carvers you went to visit? Carvin Reed, an old Schenkertager that lived close to Daddy at that time, was in the Sunday paper. There was a like a magazine in the Sunday paper. And and he was there was that little feature story on him. And anyway, Daddy found out how to get a hold of the man and took me. Took me to a shop. I wasn't even old enough to drive, but just took me to a shop, and I just, wow, wow, and it's just all how he did it. And every time, and just went to see one old, older, older, you know, the older cars. And every time I could get to see one, I went to see him. Yeah, and they were happy to have you come in, and they were welcoming to you. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, you didn't have to show that you were serious or anything, or I guess they could. <laughs> they could tell maybe. <laughs> I guess that radar picked up on it. Okay. Yeah. Because, you know, that that definitely, the more carvers I've talked to, that's such a common thread, this mentorship or, like, being accepted and let into this club, I guess. I don't know if someone called it a club, but this world by older carvers, more experienced carvers, it's definitely a thread I've seen with every carver I've talked to. And do you feel that, like, I mean, if someone showed up in your shop today, would you sit here and listen with them, like a new carver? How would that work for you? Like, oh, yeah. Is this still happening? All I can do is show them how I do it. Right. Because that's what the old folks did. And some people have classes. You know, there, there are some carving classes. Like Jamie Hand from Cape May, New Jersey. He has carving classes all the time. Yeah. I don't have a class. I just have my way and I can show you how I do it. You want to copy it? That's fine. Right. I mean, eventually, this is kind of 
I don't know. <laughs> I guess I'm thinking about this too hard, but like if you watch and you look at enough decoys and enough carvers, you might be copying to an extent, but like you said, your signature will develop. Like you're never gonna, I think if you keep working at it on your, like eventually you will develop a signature. Like I think that would naturally come, right? You're, you're your own person. You're a different person than someone else. You would have a different. Absolutely. Field. Absolutely. Yeah. I don't know. There's not really a question there. That's just kind of what, I don't know if I think about it that way and mimicking someone is a good way to start that process, I guess. So well, monkey see, monkey do. Right. Okay. I guess, were you starting to take orders from shows? When did you start? When did you take orders? And well, how well, long did that go on for you? I don't know. I don't have a timetable for it. Yeah. So you start carving in the set, well, when you were 12, right? That's what you said. Yeah. 12. Back I was in the 50s, about 56. When did you build this shop? 71. 71. All right. How old were you and built this shop? 30, in my 30s, yeah. early 30s. Yeah. So how many decoys do you think have been in this shop? Probably about 7,000. Yeah. That's a lot of decoys. A so of, a lot of fun. Yeah, exactly. So where has do you think are your decoys all across the country, you think? Where do you think all across the world. Across the world. When I was at the East in in the Eastern show one year, that was when Nixon was president, I think, and he the relations with China, the you know, the country mm -hmm. of China, the mainland China, yeah. was just starting to thaw. Okay. And there was a diplomat from D.C. at the show, and he bought some of my decoys to take to China because at that time they had no hotels, motels for foreign visitors. A foreign visitor stayed with like a counterpart in that country, right. and it was a Chinese custom. The, the diplomat was explaining all this to him, yeah. that a visitor bring a gift that was a symptomatic of his country or the area of his country, something special from America or the Eastern Shore, you know, the handmade things, You're right. not not store bought, but something from that region. And he took a pair of teal over there. That's when they were just starting to get along. Yeah, that's that's cool. We talk about that on this show a lot, and I've talked about it with other people, but. Decoy carving is such an American history. It's it's not really done in this way. Um, and I grew up in Mississippi where we've kind of devoid of that kind of history, really. Um, decoys, I guess, weren't needed as they were on the Eastern Shore. But it is such an American thing. And then you're living in this place where it goes back for, I mean, how long have they had decoys in the Eastern Shore? I can't even like tell you a good number. So. Oh yeah. <laughs> and what's that like for you to be a part of that? Do you think about being a part of that history and passing that down? Well, well, in a way, I am. Yeah, you are. And and what the old folks taught me, it's my job to teach the young folks what they taught me. Right. That's you know, the American way of. Uh, that's what the Western civilization came from. Yeah. You know, the fathers teaching the sons, and over generations. Go father and father. Yeah, this is such a uh, tradition that is, I was trying to explain that to someone who doesn't, is just kind of learning all this stuff this weekend at Easton. And I was like, yeah, you know, people worry about this to keep going, but, you know, it is such a handed down tradition. And I was like, you you have to know about it to then want to do it, right? And um, it's something that 
I think like Ducks Limit, of course, and other people are trying to get more stuff awareness to get those 12-year-old boys to see a decoy and want to make their own um, and girls. And yeah, it's such a handed down tradition. So we need to kind of keep it going. So it we keep that history of it. So there are not that many people that hunt over wooden decoys anymore. But for the most part, I'm guessing all your customers are buying it for decorative purposes. They're going in bookcases. Yeah, yeah. But still, that's great. So how do you feel? This is a funny question. And you're going to be really humbled by it. You're not going to like it. But how do you feel about the fact that your stuff is going to be collectible and that you're going to, like we were at the auction yesterday and that your stuff is going to eventually be that way do you can you think about your stuff in that way oh yeah 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 i'm, I'm proud to yeah. make, make something that's collectible yeah i didn't know if you could you, you know sometimes with modern carvers they have a hard time thinking about themselves as something that's gonna you know appreciate and be something that people trade in 50 years <laughs> Does that seem odd to you at all? Mm-hmm. No. Not because I appreciate what the, the, the generations ahead of me did. Right. The workmanship. I'm just glad to be able to do it myself. Okay. I want to hear some stories. So tell me, is there any like commission that you did that, I don't know, was more difficult or you didn't know what you were going to start with or maybe ended up somewhere you didn't think it was going to go? Or any decoy, like you started out one way and you thought this decoy was going to be something, but it turned another way or anything of that. And how do you deal with that? Full speed ahead. <laughs> okay. So give me give me an example. Can you think of a certain one? No. no. Like the, these are sawed out of a piece of wood from a pattern. Okay. This sounds corny, but when I want to take a vacation from carving decoys like this, yeah, I get a, a piece of a, a log. Mm-hmm. A, a log, yeah, and just start splitting it with nothing but a hatchet. Okay, and just subconscious carves a duck. You know, I just start chopping. <laughs> I start chopping out of a out of a log, and the next thing I see, this is gonna be a pintail. This <laughs> is gonna be a broadbill. This is gonna be whatever it is. That, I just my hand, hands. I just start chopping and just happy go along, and subconscious will tell me what that duck's gonna be. Huh. That's interesting. So you and I wonder how much of that is like muscle memory or how much that is just like the artistic part of you just kind of taking over your body in a way. <laughs> like cuz I mean you've done so many. Don't know. Yeah, there's no way. Just I'm, having a good time. Yeah. Um have you ever like been in the middle of making one and had a vision for another one and had to be like put that one aside and sort of you see all this half finished bird? Yes. That's why I've been distracted. Yeah. And they just kind of go and working on what's uh, foremost in my mind. Yeah. And is that, I guess since you don't do commissions anymore, that's kind of the joy of what you have now is you can kind of let your creative process just do what it wants to do, right? Yep. Yeah. You can just let it go. Have you enjoyed that part? Oh, yeah, yeah. my God. Yeah. Is that, yeah. Not having to think about making a rig of decoys. Or- oh, no, I think about, I thought of time or two about doing it for a living. Mm-hmm. And I was happily married when I thought about it the first time my wife was, they didn't have that, you are not. <laughs> and I'm glad that I listened to her. Yeah. Because now there's no economic pressure on me to crank them out. Right. Okay. So I have very little like experience with this, but I can think like, 
I, the first thing I did, at, I went to art school to like, I guess, be an artist. And like within a year, I was like, this isn't for me. I don't, being told what to do sucked. I didn't like it. I didn't want people to tell me what to draw or what to paint. And yeah, I hated it. So I'm guessing it's similar for you that like when you get to do what you want to do, like have if it would have been econ- an economic process for you, maybe that would have taken the fun out of it. Yeah, it would just become a job. Yeah. And then, you know, the jobs get t- all jobs get tiresome. Yeah, exactly. That's why they call it work and not play. Uh, yeah, if it's a job, it's not your hobby in a way. I, I know people say you should make your hobby your job, and I think there is some people who can do that. I just never felt that I was that person. Me either. Yeah, I just never felt like I could do it. I would just, yeah, I don't know. I like to do what I want to do. Maybe <laughs> it's because I'm hard-headed. I don't know. Are you hard-headed? Oh, I'm a square head. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I get that. Talk to me a little bit about your paint process because you have a very unique paint process to me. It's got this, I, I this is a podcast, nobody can see it, but I don't know how to describe your paint, but it's got this softness to it. Well, that is wet on wet paint. and Are you painting with uh, oils? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. I, I thought so, I can kind of tell. And I learned it by accident. I had all, I had to paint... With all, all my colors open. Right. And and I had a brush for every color. And I was out here, been painting all day, and dip, dip the brush I had in my hand went in the wrong can of paint and a big swipe, the wrong color. Okay. I said, what are you going to do now with damage control? And started feathering it out. Mm-hmm. Simple. That's so simple. There's no paint, the paint by line, you know, or... You know, paint by number, or right. when you're painting, you know, you you know, you don't want to get the ceiling paint on the walls. Right. Forget that. Forget that, and that is a hard obstacle to overcome. Yeah. I just keep. I was thinking. I just wait for my daddy to punch me in the jaw. <laughs> you know, you don't strike a water line. And got oh, no. You don't do that. No. You can with wet on wet. So there's no boundary. You just kind of let one color overrun the other. Just. You don't need blending brushes. Just, just take one right. color and just paint it right into the other until it's gone. That, that, that's, that's where all the, the harsh boundaries, there are no harsh boundaries. Stay tuned to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, sponsored by Purina ProPlan, after these messages. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. reminds me because I remember when I was I, I painted a lot and I had a really um, really good teacher that like let me come and hang out at her house and, and I was just painting I used to I was one of those little girls who loved horses so I painted a lot of horses and I was in high school and I was painting this horse and I was like it just kept getting muddier and muddier and I couldn't get the color I wanted and she came up and she just took a paper towel and wiped it clean 
And it was like all that color that I had built was still there. But when she wiped it, it just did this thing that I was like, it just, I was like, blew my mind. I was like, you can just wipe it off and it'll still be like this more soft, feathered. It, it did. It blew my mind. I say that's what, there's no paint when this was one color. No, it's just so, so one when there's no boundary. Yeah. So how, this is kind of getting in the weeds because I, I just, I'm interested. How thin is your paint? So how thin is the paint on the decoy? I, I well, mean, like. What I do. It basically, we work with rust oleum. Okay. With tube colors added. Okay. You know, the rust oleum to start with is kind of thin. All, all the store what paint now is too thin. Yeah. I want it thick. Yeah. Start with a half a quart of rust oleum and add these whatever these family size. Yeah, the big, the big tube. Uh, well, what the hell? I used to. I use that paint too. Uh, well, uh, anyway, <laughs> yeah. add, add one of these to a half a quart of rust oleum. Okay. And, and, and whatever color. You know, you know, kind of tint that I'm trying to work with. That's what I start with. And I start by painting the wood one one coat one coat rough. Okay. Just slap it on there, and that soaks in the wood. So when that's dry, that is a, in the, in your pattern. Rough patterns there for for you too. No sketching. It's it's there. And put the second coat on. It like puddles up on the top. It does not soak in. Okay. So it stays fluid a lot longer. Okay. Than, than one coat. So on the second coat, you've got time to blend the colors together. Okay. And tint colors. You can put, I'd love to have a clamshell here with some, some tinting colors. And with this, the same brush, just catch a corner. Right. In there and just put it right in there and you can just add cadmium barium orange. Yeah. You know that color? Yeah, I know that color. You think that's on a duck? No, but it is. <laughs> Cigar, I learned that trick from Cigar Daisy. Yeah, okay. If you want that golden pancake brown, that golden tan, cadmium barium on. Anyway, I, Cigar would, he, he would mislead people at times. Yeah. But I watched him, watched him right there, and, and you know, I was paying close attention. So he was not misleading. And I got home and I, I got some of that. That's a hard color to find. And I asked Cigar about mixing colors. And you know what his advice was? Try them all. <laughs> Shotgun. <laughs> Try them all. <laughs> and that has been so handy because you know for yourself, sometimes you get surprises. That's true, yeah. It's not like two and two make four, two and two make 22. Yeah. So you just never know. Anyway, until you try them. Yeah, yeah. You know, my, my art teacher, she would never let me use black. She would say, no, you can't use the black paint. You make black paint. I was like, and she refused to let me use black. She, like, she would buy us those sets for us when we first started oils, and she'd take the black and throw it away. And she wouldn't let us do it. She was like, no, you have to learn to make black. Because your black's not just black. It could be purple. It could be blue. It could be green. <laughs> I learned this trick from Charlie Joyner. To make gray, there's no black. Yep, no black. <laughs> raw umber. Yep. A little bit of raw umber. A little more, a little more, a little more, however gray you want it, just keep adding raw umber. Yeah. And add black to white, it gets kind of a violet shade, purple, bluish, bluish purple shade, mm -hmm. especially you get under incandescent lights. You know, that well, the color of the lights, you know, yeah. about that. But anyway, because I've had some had some gray down, it looked, looked gray in the shop, and I carried it to the high school in Easton. They got what, incandescent lights on. <laughs> And I took them outside to make sure that I was seeing right. Right. No, it's great. So I know, yeah. Yeah. 
Okay, so let me go back because when you're talking about putting, because this I don't know very well, when you're putting that first coat on the deep, on the wood, right? Because I always paint on canvas, so this that that's I don't know. But how long does that take to dry? Because oil tends to be a slow. But does the rust oleum make it faster? No, no, no. Okay. The, the rust oleum has enough dryer in it of its own. Okay. That I want to slow that down. Okay. And the tube colors will to- slow it down for you because that you know they need right. it. They, they take forever. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so <laughs> so the the dryer is in the paint. Okay. That's um, that's a funny way to look at it, but yeah, yeah, the, the, well, that makes sense to no, me. No, and and dryers to that too. I um, and 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 the paint is the dryer for the tube colors. Okay. So so how long does it take for that first one? Can you? paint it and then go on and do the second coat or does it need to sit or, or and you come at, back to it at least overnight okay that's at what least. i assume at least okay and then that second coat obviously would take even longer right depends on the, the, depends on on the on some of the pigments take you know right like a white takes forever okay let's say you're doing like a a mallard hen right and it's got all that detail so would you even come back and do like a third or a fourth on something to add that detail, or how do you? Yeah, well, what I do is instead of trying to paint each feather, right, like Illinois River style, where it's like, uh, yeah, yeah, I do is take a a brush and turn like on edge, mm-hmm. and on the on the contrast and the 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 backs of first coat is a dark brown, okay, and then with a, with a lighter shades different and different shades of tan. With a brush on the edge, and just paint. You just scratch in. No, no, oh. it's it's dot. You just get on just dot 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 dot. Oh, okay. And, and and it goes fast. It goes fast. And just and just okay. Yeah. So then I guess let's say, what about your wood duck here? What is how long does that's probably your most one of your more detailed ones? Is right that one of those wood ducks? Oh, they're slow. <laughs> they're slow. Yeah. <laughs> is that your slowest one? Is a wood duck or like one of maybe a... Sh- no, oh, the Drake wood duck. Yeah, slow. Yeah, I would think it's probably your most detailed bird that I see. How often do you make shorebirds? Whatever, do you make uh, them as often as you make ducks or do you just kind of move <laughs> around? Every spring is, is a main time because okay. when they're migrating through here, right back right back here is one of, it's one of those migration key points okay. for shorebirds. And they're every... Kind left come through here in huge numbers, and they're not all on the same schedule. I got I used to keep notes of it when this one comes, just like the swallows coming back to Capistrano. Yeah. This when they first one these come, and when they leave, because yeah. they don't stay. Some of them don't stay long at all. Okay, and they anyway they just swarms of them, just clouds of them at times, and you see the cloud and here and they. Yeah. Oh, they're fascinating. Anyway, that's what that's when I'm really inspired. Yeah. Is that, so, yeah. Do you get inspired by what you see, like what's in oh, the area, oh, and oh yeah, what what's what's going on right in front of you? Yeah. You know, I've never. That's something. So, I mean, I've seen shorebirds obviously because I've been to the beach and stuff, but that's just something we don't have where I grew up, and I've always kind of had a fascination for the carvings because it's kind of foreign to me. 
But yeah, I'd love to see that. That'd be awesome to see all those birds coming through. So they still come through in those big numbers, like lots of them. Yeah. Lots. You just sit out there and watch them. We sure do. Yeah. So, you know, do you still hunt anymore? Do you st- have you stopped mm. hunting? No. Nope. Do you just like to go out and watch though? I mean, you know, Cameron one time told me like it was one of the things that he like said sparked his thing and I, it's the thing I love about his paintings, you know. He has the best paintings, and no one knows about them. But he captures those quiet moments when you're out there and the birds. He doesn't put birds in it, which is kind of nice, but I can kind of almost picture the birds in there. When you see those birds, and they're just working, and it's poor, everyone's shooting at them, and it's just like this, I don't even know how to explain it. It's magic. It's this magic moment, and I, I always want people that have never hunted before to just go see it. I mean, even if you don't shoot, just to be in that, it's inspiring. And there's not much, anything else like it. Oh, no, no. <laughs> so you're still going and looking at that stuff and being a part of that? Yeah, I'm just not pulling the trigger anymore. Yeah, yeah. I don't need to always pull the trigger. My dad doesn't pull the trigger. He he takes a lot of people to go pull the trigger, but he doesn't pull the trigger that often anymore. And he, he likes taking, now he takes all his grandkids. So did your kids hunt or carve or did they ever show any interest in this or? No, no they never did. How about your grandkids? What do they think about all your? Too early to tell. Too early to tell. Yeah. Do they like, uh, do you let them play with them? Any of them at all? Don't really know. Oh, you don't really know? No. Um, all right. So let's see. Let's go back to, um, so you change your style of decoy pretty like I noticed, like you have the little snaky heads, and you kind of change what what makes you. Is it just like while you're chopping it out, you just you decide to go in that direction, like that style, or what makes you think hey, about what direction you're going to go with a decoy? It's just what uh what I had for breakfast that day. <laughs> so, <laughs> so do you go through phases though? Like, do you say I'm going to do like. I like doing, I'm doing this for a little while, and then it just kind of switches over. That's what I said. That's when I go on vacation with just a hatchet and a, and a log and start chopping, and I'll make a dozen, whatever comes out of that log. And there'll be one out of that dozen has something special about it. Well, I'll make a pattern off of that okay. that one, and that's what I'll make till the next day I go on vacation. Yeah, so how do you ever, so let's say you make that pattern and you do those until you're ready to, yeah, like figure something else. Do you ever go back to an old pattern, or do you? Sure do. Okay. Sure do. So how often would you go back to a pattern? Oh. Like, do you even know? <laughs> or do you I have just for get breakfast? like an itching to go back to a pattern and do it again? Oh, I've got, you know, what a fish box is. Uh, what you know, uh, what they pack fifty pounds of fish. Yes. I I got three of those boxes full of old patterns. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't throw any of them away. Okay. So I can go back to one of my earlier, earliest patterns and make a 1971 dipper. Okay. I've, you know, I can do that. Yeah. <clears throat> Does it come out differently after over the years from when you did it the first time? Oh, cool. well, yeah. 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 Do you like it better the first time you did it or the last time you did it? <laughs> Whatever I have for breakfast. <laughs> That's going to be your go-to answer. All right. Uh, it's just interesting because you, obviously you're not the same carver you were when you first made the pattern, and now you're, you know you you evolve without help, without trying. Oh boy, I'm thinking <laughs> about the things I would have changed if I got if I was doing this thirty like when I started thirty forty years ago. This is what I would have changed. Right. 
but I didn't do it. But anyway. Do you ever see a decoy at someone's house and think like, oh, I just wish I'd done that differently? Like, do you, or do you like how you did it for that time in your life? N- none of them out there, you're just like, oh, why is that still on your shelf? <laughs> no, no, I don't know. I don't I never really worried about it much. Yeah. I was just wondering, because like, I think, who is it that said that? I think it's, I think when I was talking to Jerry, he said like, yeah, there's some of them out there he wishes he could like have them throw them in the fire but no I don't think anybody would do that well um, I th- I tell people the young boys that want to start carving I tell them the first one's going in the stove yeah oh no 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 your first one's going in the stove so it won't embarrass you later how long do you think it takes when you got these new get you guys to kind of finally get one that's how long do you think that'll take somebody no estimate. Yeah, I mean, they say, what is it? They say like 10,000 hours you become a pro or something like that. <laughs> something crazy. So, some people, <laughs> the, 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 uh, the old carpenter I used to work with, they said there's three categories of talent. Some people, as, as a guy, as a blessed or talented. And then the second class, you can learn it. You don't, you're not born with it, but you can learn it. Right. And then there's the third class. <laughs> Just never gonna come. <laughs> just ain't ain't got it. Ain't got it. <laughs> and Lem Ward used to tell young carvers that wanted to learn how to carve. <clears throat> Boy, saw out ten heads, and he carved each one. And as you as you finish, put number one. And if ten is no better than number one, drop it. <laughs> did you know them at all? Did you get to meet the wards? I sure did. What was that like? It was like meeting the Pope. Yeah, <laughs> did they offer knowledge or and show you how was what were they like well, to a young carver? I had they, I just you know, asked them for criticism. I, well, I said, "What do I need to do? Yeah. Looks good, boy. It looks good." <laughs> and I can tell what I'm doing wrong. <laughs> oh, <it> looks good. <laughs> so I learned by copying them. Yeah, not by what they say. Cause oh, I look good. <laughs> <laughs> I never give you good feedback. What were they? How? I mean, I don't know. You know, I don't know a lot. I haven't heard that many stories of them. Were they really different from each other? Did they like? Well, I, not that I I knew. Yeah. Not, not, not I could. Obviously, they were. But yeah, like from a out from a carver perspective. Um. Well, well, the two brothers eating. How different some people can be. Brothers can be. Right. Are similar. They were pretty close. Of what yeah. I would say. Personality-wise, they had, they had differences, but they, they had, you know, there was no trouble to tell one from the other. Right. But they were, you could tell they were brother. Yeah. How often were, I guess they were carving their own stuff and collaborating, but what, I don't know. That's an interesting thought of collaborating on decoys. I mean, you've done, you said in there, like you had that one where you did the body and someone did the head. What's that like to work with another carver to make the one object? How does that differ? I've never asked anyone that question, actually. And uh, for, for me, I make it, I'll do it all myself. Yeah. And, and that's that's it. Yeah. So I, I really can't say that they collaborate. And I, really, I really can't say. Yeah. I guess if you have a head from somebody else, though, you can then imagine well, to put well, the body for I'll it. Show, I told you that hairy head yeah. in the house with a cork that I made the body and Kenny Marshall made the head. Yeah. Of course, we were working together down yeah. there. And, Anyway, that was just one of those happen, happens, happens, so things. Yeah. Have you made many cork decoys? That was the only one I've, I've seen of yours. Did you make many? A mm, couple dozen, couple dozen out of the life of life jacket yeah. cork. Was it easy for you to work with cork straight away or like did it? 
Just work with what you got. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I can't yeah. say it was, it was. It was just. It was different. Yeah. So you wouldn't use a hatch. You would just kind of slowly uh, take it down, right? No, just no. Basically, use use this handsaw. Okay. Just, uh, just shave it off to get it rough shape and a rasp. Okay. Yeah, I just never even thought about it. How old were you when you met the wards? And was that one of your? Did your dad take oh, you to the wards? It was in the late seventies. I'd have been in my early thirties. Okay. And then, um, who else were you? You said a few, but like, I guess they were still making decoys at that point. Um, who else were you like getting to? We talked a little bit about it that you were surprised by getting to see like famous carvers and stuff like that. That you got to. Was there anyone else that you got to really? Well, uh, spent an evening with Charlie Joyner, the head of the bay. Yeah. And he's the one that taught me, and he learned it from Lem Ward about mixing. Gray, yeah, paint. Okay, it's a heck of a hand me down right there. Yeah, well, like I say this is the his, this <laughs> whole lot of hand me down. <laughs> yeah, I think this is somewhat in question that Lynn Ward learned learned that trick from Lynn Bogue Hunt. Oh wow! Yeah. So, so anyway, there's a whole lot of hand me down in the decoy. Yeah. A tradition. Yeah, Lynn Bogue Hunt. He uh, yeah he. He was a hell of a painter, and yeah, he can mix some paint perfectly. Um, that's incredible. So I wonder. I was thinking yesterday when that uh, we were at the auction yesterday, and did you see that um, Pentel went for sixty five thousand dollars? That Ward Pentel. I wonder what they think about that. They're that Pentel going for sixty five thousand dollars. I think about that all the time when these decoys go for these crazy amounts of money, and I think, you know, what these guys would think about now seeing that shaking their head yeah i mean it's amazing bird but yeah it's just it's hard to think about something like that because they didn't think about like you even you don't even like for me to call you a master carver or an artist but it's hard to it's hard not to say that about something that's being sold for sixty five thousand dollars you know like it's hard to make that jump right like to justify and I think the people to get wrap their head head around it, they have to classify it that way, you know. I call it Alice in Wonderland. Yeah, so explain that to me. Oh, <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> How about that? Okay. Like anything collectible, got a quarter that's got a D or S on it, nineteen twenty-two or something, is worth a half million dollars. Right. Just for. Just rarity, I guess. Uh, oh, can't, well, it's uh, not just rarity. Uh, well, it's Alice in Wonderland. <laughs> that make a bit of sense. <laughs> but that's what it is. I guess we need to stop trying to wrap our head around it and just accept it. Maybe. And, uh, well, I just say, well, how about that? I don't. I, don't, I can't, can't really comprehend it. Yeah. All right. Okay. I've taken up a lot of your time. Is there anything? that you want to say to our audience you know we're not necessarily who's listening to this are not necessarily know about carvers or know about decoys I mean I'm trying that's what I'm trying to do um, they might be just be duck hunters in Arkansas or Illinois or all the way over in Washington but they're all American yes yeah, so what do you, is there anything you'd like them to know about carving in the eastern shore and that we hadn't talked about. They're all, they're all different. They're all every area of the country had different notions and different physical conditions, weather, water. They were just made to survive there. And I guess what would be if you had some advice 
for somebody that wants to pick this up, what would be your two cents? <laughs> Read Joel Barber's book, Wildfowl Decoys, first published in 1936-37. Start there. Okay. Start with it. it's, it's not it's not the introduction, I think it's chapter one. <laughs> it talks about what a decoy is. Okay. And there's one line in that I got a copy of the book when I was about 14, 15, don't know Christmas present, and there's a line in there. Of all the birds susceptible to the lure of a decoy, I am the most gullible of all. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. That's powerful. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much for doing this with me. This is fun. I'm glad I got to do it. Well, come back again. Oh, I will. All right. Thank you, Pete, for coming on the show. Thanks, Chris Isaac, our producer. And thanks to you, our listener, for supporting wetlands and waterfowl conservation. Thank you for listening to the DU Podcast, sponsored by Purina Pro Plan, the official performance dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Purina Pro Plan, always advancing. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit ducks.org slash DU Podcast. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com.